everyone. Welcome to another episode of Quirks of Creation. I'm Elise, and with me as always is the quirk to my quack, Jess Holmes. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Yay. We are so excited to be back here tonight. Thank you, everybody in chat for the prayers while we got our tech stuff figured out, but I think we are golden and good to go. I am super stoked to start this kind of like two-part series we got going on tonight. Yeah. And so Jess is the brave one, and she's going to get us started, and I'll let you uh, tell us what you're going to talk about tonight. I'm super excited for tonight's episode. We're basically going to be answering the question that we kind of proposed in the trailer of our show. I mean, is radiometric dating as valid as people claim, right? Is it a valid way to look at our history? Is the earth really billions and billions of years old? But before we jump into that, I want to give a big old shout out to Sheila18 and Conspiracy Pilled, who are our first two local subscribers. Thank you guys Woo-hoo! so much. Woohoo! Thank you. Cheap advertisement for a conspiracy pilled, but we'll take it. We'll take it. Yeah, we'll take it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, seriously, guys, we super appreciate it because we just launched our first episode of Quirks or Quacks. Yes. It was so good. That was so it was fun. It was so fun. I had so much fun doing that. Yeah. I can't wait to do more. And because there's only two people who got to see it, that means we got we to gotta show them a little teaser, I think. I think so, too. To get them interested. Show them what it. they're missing. So I, I think our producer, PJ, in the background knows what he's doing, maybe. Uh, there's a Quirks or Quacks teaser slide. Can we show that? Nope. All right. Oh, Let me try not. it. We're using a whole new streaming. There is not supposed to have been any such technology in that period. I think he's a little quacky. He's one of those people. He comes so close. He's so close. But it's like, you just kind of like, you just miss it. And what's scary is you don't have to do anything. They can make their way inside of your body just by contact. Ow. Oh. (laughs) I live, I live in Northern Michigan. So we have (laughs) the five, the Great Lakes. And I love them. And now I'm terrified of them. Okay, so that's totally fake though, right? Yeah. He doesn't know the name of the lab. He right. doesn't know the name of the test they're doing, but he's intelligent enough to say, okay, I want you to take the white blood cells and put it into a growth medium. We don't need to sit here and be like, we're right. We nailed it. Yeah. End of story. <laughs> is not supposed to have been I really, really hope you guys go check it out over on quirksofcreation.locals.com. Yay. And hopefully you'll have as much fun watching it as we did recording it. So it was a lot of fun. It's very laid back, far less notes, but right. uh, definitely a lot more quackiness. Yes, definitely. A little more uh, ad-libbing from us and a little less uh, on the schedule. So it was, it was right. fun. But yeah. It was super fun. But to get back to our usual content, so let's talk about radiometric dating. I'm excited. Let's do it. Let's do it. Okay. So the first thing, uh, when you think of radiometric dating, what element do you typically think of? Like what? Carbon? 
Yeah, carbon. Everybody yeah. thinks of carbon dating when they hear, oh, you know, we're, we're going to date something, right? We're going to get the historical record of it. So people typically think of carbon dating. So that's where we're going to start. And actually, I think this is kind of funny. The guy who pioneered carbon-14 dating was named Willard Libby. I think <laughs> <laughs> Right. I think that's funny because we have Olivia and Hawkhound. So basically, it's all her fault. Or yeah. I guess her husband's fault. Right. Whatever. Whatever. It's all their fault. We'll blame somebody. Exactly. Um, But in carbon dating, you're basically measuring the ratio of carbon-14 to carbon-12. And the production of carbon-14 is this secondary effect of cosmic rays. We think of cosmic rays as just like energy from the sun, energy coming down from space. Um, If we can pull up our first image right here, maybe, of just kind of what that looks like. Because I I think it's really interesting because primary cosmic rays, there we go, are mostly composed of protons, a.k.a. hydrogen atoms, right? And sometimes helium because the sun puts out both. And they've been accelerated to these extremely high speeds. Like these things are clocking it. They're going super fast. Um, And because they're charged particles, most of them are deflected away from the Earth's atmosphere, because our atmosphere is good. That would suck for us to be constantly (laughs) pelted with high-energy particles all the time. That would probably hurt. Might not feel too great. Yeah. So, good job, atmosphere. Yay. (laughs) Um, But there's a little bit that does get through, and it's... have a dance party it's cool bear with us guys we're getting used to the new tech this new software it's exciting it looks really good yeah i love it once we get it down it's gonna be fantastic so you just might get a dance party every now and then that's right whatever you're ready for anything (laughs) i love it um Mm -hmm. but the atmosphere right is going to be absorbing these high energy particles and do you know what elements primarily in the atmosphere um CO2? No? I don't know. That'd be bad if it was CO2. That's wrong. CO2 is definitely there. That's the one everybody's afraid of. But it's right. actually nitrogen. Um, nitrogen's you know, very passive, N2. Um, and it absorbs a lot of that radiation. And so your common everyday nitrogen that we breathe in uh, undergoes a very typical nuclear reaction with this energy. So I think we have uh, the carbon cycle image to pull up. Maybe <laughs> we can try it. Basically what happens is the nitrogen nucleus absorbs all of this energy and one of, I'm trying to remember this correctly, one of the protons is basically turned into a neutron and an extra electron. So the electron is ejected and the neutron or the proton becomes a neutron, making it a heavier element, but a different one. So now instead of being nitrogen, it's carbon. And this carbon is not super stable, right? Because you basically took nitrogen's proton and turned it into a neutron. That's a nuclear reaction. It's very unstable, but that carbon... Yeah, dun, dun, dun. Um, that carbon can actually decay back into nitrogen 14. So it gets all excited because it has all this energy and it's like, okay, I'm going to chill out and calm back down into nitrogen 14. But before it can do that, that carbon's incorporated into, you called it earlier, carbon dioxide. Right. 
I was just ahead of. I was just ahead. Of you things. were ahead. Yeah, that's you it. knew it. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah. So carbon dioxide. I mean, yeah, the climate scientists are worried about it being a greenhouse gas. We're not going to worry about that part. What we're going to worry about is how it participates in the carbon cycle because plants do photosynthesis and they take out of the atmosphere that carbon dioxide that everybody hates and turn it into energy and it gets incorporated into their cell walls. Super important. But that means that carbon dioxide that has the carbon-14 in it can be consumed by things that eat the plants. And so now, like, say, a cow eats some grass. Now the cow has some carbon-14 in it. We eat the cow. Now we got carbon-14 in us. You kind of see how it goes down the cycle. Yeah. Yeah. So we're constantly storing up all of this carbon-14. Does it degrade, like... When the cow eats it, it's a little bit less. And when we eat the cow, it's a little bit less, or is it? Yes, that's exactly right. Um, Yeah, it's just like how they would teach it to you in high school. There's diminishing return as you go up the trophic levels. Right. Um, But supposedly, this carbon-14 concentration is in approximate equilibrium with the atmosphere. So basically what this means is there's a certain amount of carbon-14 in every organism because every organism breathes, every organism eats. There's always going to be this exchange of carbon-14 and carbon-12. That is until you die. (laughs) Right. Right. Then it is. After an organism dies, it's no longer exchanging carbon-14 with other organisms. Now you have a set amount of carbon-14 that your body is holding. And remember, that stuff is super radioactive, or I shouldn't say super. It is radioactive, which means it's going to decay. It's going to decay back into nitrogen-14. And that's where we get into the topic of half-lives. I think we kind of mentioned half-lives a little bit on our last episode about the Shroud of Turin. Yes. Yeah. So for those of you guys who might have missed it, a half-life of a radioactive isotope is basically the time it takes to decrease a sample by half. So let's say I have a two-gram sample of carbon-14. After 5,730 years, I will have one gram of carbon-14. Now... um, And just remember, for like every subsequent half-life interval, its concentration will further decrease by a factor of two. So you go from two to one to 0.5, 0.25, like smaller and smaller halves until you get to zero. Right. What makes this really challenging for scientists is the the actual abundance of carbon-14. And this is where it's important to point out the difference between the most abundant carbon which is carbon-12, mm-hmm. and that has six protons, six neutrons, and six electrons. Super stable, has six of everything. Uh, I don't want to point out the weird correlation of the number six is there. <laughs> <laughs> next one, next next, next episode. <laughs> conspiracy pill. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but it's super stable. Carbon-14, on the other hand, has two extra neutrons. So that makes it heavier. Okay, so these are things called isotopes. Also makes it rare, of course, because it's radioactive. So if carbon-12 is like 99% abundant, carbon-14 is 1 times 10 to the negative 10% abundant. (laughs) Right. 
Yeah. And again, any one of those given numbers. Sample. Yeah, yeah. That's just like one of those numbers. It's like a fraction. How can I think of it? How many zeros are there? It's a fraction of a millionth or a billionth. Something like that. Like impossibly small. Yes. Impossibly Fine. small. Um, yeah. So if we had a 100 gram sample of carbon, one times 10 to the negative 10 grams of that sample would actually be carbon 14. After 5,730 years, you would have five times 10 to the negative 11 grams of sample left, right? We're just getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Itty bitty live in space. <laughs> yes. Until there's no carbon left. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I don't, how do they even find it? <laughs> so that's no. This is a really good question. So they have this uh, instrumentation called accelerated mass spectrometry. It's basically this big old instrument. Uh, you have to basically ionize a sample of carbon un into their individual elements. And then the ionized sample will pass through a quadrupole, which are basically fancy magnets that separate the elements apart. And when you get a graph readout, you get distinct peaks on the graph that correspond to the elements that went through the quadrupole. Uh, it's really cool. That's actually something I got to do a lot while I worked for the CDC. I didn't get to look at uh, like isotopes like that. I was looking at fatty acids. Oh, that's pretty awesome. And I didn't, uh, I didn't look at anything like that at that low of a concentration. I was typically looking at the milligram or microgram concentration which is still really small yeah. but this is this is small guys yeah yeah <laughs> you think you know small <laughs> <laughs> right you think you know small it's like you're basically looking at almost individual molecules that are left behind in the sample and so basically they claim, based on our current instrumentation, and depending on the sample, it can take anywhere between 8 to 10 half-lives for the carbon-14 to no longer be detectable. Basically, what that means, there's always some background noise whenever you run a particular instrument. Uh, just because of, like, the natural radiation around us, you will always have just, like, a little bit of fuzz in your graph. Sure. Um but if the amount is so small, you can't separate it from the fuzz. It, it's basically too small to tell, which I'm already thinking that's really small. How do you separate it from the fuzz? You must have some really good background samples. Right. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy to it differentiate, be able to differentiate at that level. <laughs> it, yes. It's so crazy. Yeah. Um, and this, range they claim is about 50,000 to 60,000 years for carbon. So it's not actually even the millions and billions of years that we're always told. Right. I, I just find this really interesting because when we think of radiometric dating, we typically think of carbon and we tend to assume that's the reason we know the age of certain fossils is because of their carbon dated age. But yeah. that's actually not true because carbon dating can't be used to go that far back in time. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. Because, yes, that's what I've always, I guess, believed, assumed to know. That, okay, keep going. Sorry. Yeah. No, I love it. Mind. 
Uh, I do have to read over on Rumble. Abby Libby left us a Rumble rant, a conspiracy pilled <laughs> ad spot. So she bought another conspiracy pilled ad spot. I think, I think they're just trying to buy ads on our show, <laughs> which they don't need to because they're right. our sister show. Right, right. We'll promote you whenever you want. <laughs> right. You just gotta ask. Uh, um, but thanks, but, Abby. Yeah, thanks, Abby. Yeah, you guys should seriously check out Conspiracy Pilled. We do like a lot of the science and history and they do all of the crazy stuff. And I love it. I love it. Yeah. Promote Promote us. us. Conspiracy (laughs) Pilled is cool. It is cool. There you go. (laughs) And I don't know if Conspiracy Pilled has a half-life, but you know what has an unlimited half-life? That's North Arrow Coffee. You like that? You like that? I love Neurothera coffee. It's delicious. It's five-star microwavable. That I, th- I think I'm going to have to change it for the summer. It's five-star. I'm going to put ice in it and drink it as cold coffee. Yes, definitely. <laughs> and they're super pro-life. So they donate 15% of all their proceeds to pro-life charities. It's single origin and roaster order. So treat yourself to some delicious coffee and save some babies by using code Hawkound to get 10% off your order. Cheers. Cheers. I said code Hawkhound. We don't use that one anymore. We use Quirks 10. Yay. Yay. My brain. <laughs> use Quirks 10. One but of Quirks those. 10 is probably the best one. So Quirks 10 is definitely the best. Don't use uh, Conspiracy Pill 10 or whatever it is. I hear that one doesn't work. Yep. Definitely not. Definitely not. We'll promote them, but not their, uh... <laughs> but not their, uh... yeah. Another code. Okay. Wartime propaganda left us another rumble rant. When do we get to do a Half-Life video game stream? A Half-Life the video game is just mid. So, I mean. Nice. <laughs> I don't think I've ever played that one, so. I, I tried to watch my husband play it, and I was bored. <laughs> I, I honestly don't remember anything about it, so. It's obviously not for backseat gamers. Right, right, right. Which is what I am. I'm a backseat. Me too. Me too. I say it like I'd play it, but I would just watch. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. Audio listeners, if you guys are confused, I'm sorry, but this is why you guys should come over to Rumble and subscribe and hang out with us because we get to do all of these cool pictures and stuff with Rumble. So, come hang out with us. And we chat. We like keep up with everybody who's here. So, or try to, or try to do our best. But that's kind of half the fun is the chatting. It is half the fun. Yeah. All right. So let's get into some of the assumptions that go into carbon dating, because uh, this is just true of science in general. You have to go in with a certain set of assumptions and assumptions doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to assume something that's entirely false, right? right? Like I have to assume that my instrument is working correctly. Like I have to assume that my camera and mic are re- working correctly in order to be a podcaster, yep. right? Unless I have evidence to believe otherwise. Same thing is true with science. You have to go in with a certain set of assumptions. The first assumption that is made, and it's pretty big, is that the concentration of carbon-14 in all living organisms is contained in one of the carbon reservoirs, like in a cow or in a tree or in the atmosphere, and has remained constant over the geologically recent past. So like the last several thousand years. Basically, what this is saying is that the ratio of carbon-12 to carbon-14 has been unchanging. That kind of makes sense. 
Yeah. Yeah. I it's mean, like, go ahead. Y- yes. And yes. And no, like it seems it does make sense. Keep going. I think you're going to go where I was going to go. So. Okay. Um, it, it's basically essential for their measurement. Cause like, let's, it, it's that a hundred out of a hundred gram sample. I have one times 10 to the negative 10th percent of carbon 14. If that is not always true, that changes the calculation. It's basically like saying, I, we know that the speed of light is 3.0 times 10 to the eighth meters per second. Or, or we think we know that. We have to assume that to be true in order for our calculations to work. Right. That makes sense. Yep. Um, and I think I have, do I have a little graphic for this? Oh, yeah. I have a math proof that goes through that. We don't have to look at the math proofs because it's a lot of math. Um, yay, math. Um, The second one of these is that the sample being analyzed has not undergone any cross-contamination with recent or older materials that would change the amount of carbon-14 in the sample. That what I am analyzing is truly representative of the sample itself and has been true since it started dying, right? Because you can only look at the decay of carbon-14 once it starts dying. Right. So, again, another important assumption if you want your calculations to be correct. Um, We talked about the ratios. And then uh, one of the most important ones, I think, is that the natural levels of carbon-14 can be accurately measured to appropriate levels of precision. Like we said, uh, my tools work, right? Right. I, I can distinguish the peak from the fuzzy background noise. And I know what I'm looking at. Right. Okay. I, I'm sure you guys can see there are already some problems <laughs> with these assumptions. Just a lot a lot of um, big assumptions, <laughs> maybe. Base Babe says, I'm here to start over. Uh, <laughs> we've already gone through so much. Base- no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Actually, a lot of what we talked about already was stuff we had already talked about in the Shroud of Turn episode. So if you saw that episode, you're all caught up. You just missed the recap. Yeah, that was just yeah. the recap. Just a yeah. slightly more in-depth recap. Yes. All right. So let's first, uh, let's talk about the first assumption that the amount of carbon-14 is constant. Uh, this is actually being retconned pretty heavily because they're seeing how the levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere have increased since the Industrial Revolution. Right. This is what the climate change people are all worried about, that the sun monster is going to kill us because there's too much CO2 in the atmosphere. <laughs> yes. But because of that, it, ru- <laughs> it ruins the first and most primary assumption of carbon dating, which is that the levels of CO2 in the atmosphere have not always been constant. Right. Oops. Out the window. <laughs> yeah, they're yeah. got to eat that, that assumption out. <laughs> um, so, so what do they do about that? Like, how right. how could they account for that? Right. Um, because you can't you can't know if there've been other events like this. I mean, sure, w- we can believe that maybe ancient Egyptians weren't digging up fossil fuels and using them to power machines to build the pyramids. But maybe, uh, maybe. No. Yeah, that's that's not for us. That's um, not ours either. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, you're good. <laughs> um, 
But that's not to say that events haven't happened that would change the CO2 levels. Like they believe in an ice age. Right. Right. That would change the CO2 levels. Volcanic eruptions around the world change the CO2 levels locally. Yes. Yes. So now their primary assumption is not applicable. Which is. Yeah. Yeah. And what does that do to. Well. Can you make up for that? You know what I'm saying? Like, can you. Okay. So their claim is that they can create a calibration curve based on tree ring data. Uh, So Mm -hmm. I think we have a graph for tree rings. Let me see if I can share it. Yeah. All right. So these tree rings are super duper cool um, because, well, first of all, being able to accurately read tree rings is really hard. Uh, it, I think it's kind of like an art unto itself because we're told that for every ring in a tree that indicates one year of growth, right? The, the light lines are a ring and the darker lines are a separate ring, right? Okay. The thicker right. the ring, the more rainfall, the thinner the ring, the less rainfall. Gotcha. But this claim isn't exactly 100% true because sometimes trees can grow multiple rings in a year depending on if they have multiple dry or multiple rainy seasons in that same year. <laughs> so that assumption doesn't work either. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, uh, that that's a... Uh, they feel like they understand that one at least a little bit better because looking sure. at tree rings has been around a lot longer. And I think it's interesting to know that it's not just the rainy seasons or the dry seasons that can impact the width, the width of our tree rings. So can the presence of flooding, of hmm. volcanic eruptions, or the concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Nice. Nice. Yes. And so that that's where they get their idea that, okay, we can create a calibration curve based on the size of the tree rings. But as you've noticed, the planet is not exactly the same everywhere. We don't all get the same rain. We don't all get the same amount of sun. So different types of trees grow different places. You get different types of data. So you basically have to create localized data and then globalized data based on averages. Okay. So it's still a lot of a lot of work and a lot of knowing what's going on. Right. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it's it's easier for things we do know because we do know the historical water and temperature data mm-hmm. as of recently, right? Since we've been since we've been able to track those things and we like, let's say I I have the weather from yesterday. I know the temperature and I know how much it rained. Okay. And I cut down a tree and it's like, okay, I can look at tree ring a and compare it to the data I saw. So this tree ring correlates to this set of data. Well, what if I go back in time and see a similar ring? It should still correlate to that set, set of data. Right. In theory. In theory, yep. Right. So that's how they get their calibration curve. Gotcha. And to be fair to them, 
<laughs> this calibration curve is always changing based on new dating methods. Hmm. Um, because they've started looking at deep sea ice, which could contain a lot of stored carbon dioxide. But you see, there's just so much flexibility and variability in that first assumption. Yes. A lot of variables. A lot of variables. A lot, a lot of variables. Hmm. Um, the second assumption is assumption two, that there's not contamination in the sample throughout its lifetime. I mean... I, I keep referencing the episode we did uh, last week, the Shroud of Turin. Yeah. But it was such a clear example of a breach of this assumption. Um, Absolutely. It, if you guys remember, they were carbon dating the Shroud of Turin, uh, and they had pulled samples from the edges, and that had dated it to medieval times. And people were like, that can't be right. And so one of the original researchers, Ray Rogers, was like, I'll prove it in five seconds. Takes that, takes it, looks at it under a microscope and sees a weave line between cotton, which they did not use, and the original linen. So it was clearly contaminated with more modern cloth. Right. Where they had patched it. And absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we see a lot of that. And then there was like um, smoke damage and water damage and all these things. Like nothing is in a controlled environment in real life. Right. You know, and don't you like in science, when you're doing an experiment, you have to have a control so that it's consistent. It doesn't change. Right. And then I guess to assume that that happens in real life for these situations might be a a little bit of a stretch? I don't know. <laughs> yes. No, uh, you're right because, I, I mean, you're you're right because you're right. <laughs> My scientific <laughs> explanation, she's right because she's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so many predictions that scientists make, they make because they're making it within a vacuum. That's what works with modeling data because we can't take in all these variables. But real life does not occur in a vacuum. Right. So it it was an easy fix for the Shroud of Turin. He could look at it under a microscope and see the the linen weave yeah. with the cotton. But how much more could that be true with these really old organic tissues that we have no traceable history of? Right. Uh, one of the TikToks we looked at in Quirks or Quacks was um, this this preserved baby mammoth. Yeah. like very well preserved and ice. And so you would think we'd be able to get all of that tissue and do carbon dating on that. Just like, how do you know that there wasn't contamination since the time it was frozen? Right. You can't know, which is why it's an assumption. It's a very large assumption. Exactly. Um, and didn't you say something about, well, I guess it doesn't matter because we're not talking about the mammoth, but... <laughs> Like the ice has a factor of like exactly ice traps carbon dioxide. Yeah. So there'd be more. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All those things, all the things, all the things, (laughs) all the things that throw it off anyway. Yeah. And then my last big thing with this is just, because the abundance of carbon-14 is so incredibly small, you're dealing with a really small variable. 
you're dealing with something that can't be messed around with a lot. Because if it changes even a little bit, now you're adding on hundreds of thousands of years. If there's any contamination from the lab, outside sources, the atmosphere, if you just didn't do it right. (laughs) Right. And we're all human. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I made all kinds of mistakes in the lab. I I make all kinds of mistakes every single day (laughs) that are not related to lab work. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. But when you only have so much to go from, your margin of error is huge. Yeah. Margin for it. You know what I'm saying? Just as a human confirmed, oh, you guys found me out. I know I claim to be a cactus for so long, but I'm actually a human. She's not AI either. She just, yeah. just human. I'm just human. That's all I got. <laughs> I, the reason these assumptions matter to me, and I hope they matter to you guys, is because they've treated carbon dating basically like this unchallengeable religion. I remember being in school, especially being in college when I was taking biology, you could not ask any questions about the fossil record. It was true, right? And that's how we get information about the fossil record is through all of these different types of radiometric dating. You can't question it. It is, you're crazy. You're a creationist and no one takes creationists seriously. (laughs) You must believe in God or something. How dare you? And you're a fool. You are just plain foolish. And even if you aren't, just a question is like, foolish, foolish, foolish. Foolish, foolish. So those are just my problems with carbon dating. Now we're going to get into some other types of dating that I think are even worse, but they use them to actually get the date for the fossils. So that's going to be pretty interesting. But I think we need to take that data over to Rumble. And Odyssey only. Agreed. Yeah. So we always hooked. Now you got to come over and find the rest of it. That's right. Who needs transitions? We're just leaving. I told you, random dance parties today. That's right. It's just random dance party day. We're going to make it work, guys. (laughs) I like it. (laughs) Woohoo. All right. So let's talk about other types of radiometric dating. Let's do it. And you said they're worse? I I think they're less reliable. Okay. Less reliable. And and, and we'll get into why. Yay. All right. So carbon dating, we talked about earlier, is exclusively used for organic or once living organisms. And that's that's because only living organisms can take in this carbon-14, either through photosynthesis or like the cow eating the grass and us eating the cow. Um, But most of the materials we're interested in dating aren't necessarily once living. Like we're interested in dating dinosaur bones, but there's no DNA left on the bones for us to do that sort of dating with. There's no organic tissue left. Right. What we're interested in is the surrounding rocks because in theory, the age of the rocks should be the same age as the dino that died in it or these like 
ammonites and uh, shelled crustaceans that are way, way low in the fossil record and supposed to be the things we evolved from, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so these things that are supposed to be millions of years old, no longer living, how can we date those? And before we talk about those, I want to talk about two different types of isotope decay, and that's alpha decay and beta decay. So maybe we have some images about decay. If not, I can pull them up. Yay. Okay. This is alpha decay. Um, So here we've got plutonium that's decaying into uranium and helium. I think we have a particle image of this one that goes with it. Nope, that's a smoke detector. That's okay. Basically, the idea is that in alpha decay, you're releasing two protons, two neutrons, and two electrons. You're basically releasing a a helium, which means that alpha decay is really detectable because all you have to do is look at how much helium is produced in the rocks, which I think is kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, it's shooting out all of these particles. I, it, the reason we have the image of the smoke detector is because, interestingly enough, uh, smoke detectors use alpha decay. Americium is frequently used as a major alpha particle source inside smoke detectors. Uh, it ionizes the air inside the detector. So the smoke in the detector absorbs the alpha radiation. So if smoke is present, it ionizes and alert, triggers the alarm. I think that's kind of cool. That is pretty cool. Yeah. I've never known how those worked. I just was always glad that they did. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, oh, thank you. Oh, thank goodness. Yay. Yeah. Smoke detectors. They work. I know dinner's done. <laughs> right. Same. <laughs> Same. That's also how I know dinner is done. Uh, so elements that undergo alpha decay are also called alpha emitters. And they actually have to be pretty heavy elements. Things bigger than bismuth. Uh, just for context, that's element 83. There are like 108 elements on the periodic table. So, you know. Yeah. It, he's a big guy. It's a big one. He's a big one. <laughs> or uh, the rare earth elements, the lanthanide series, things like that. And the heavier they are and the less stable the nucleus is, the more likely they are to have a faster decay rate. So that means the decay rate for an alpha emitter could be anywhere from like a microsecond to as slow as billions of years. Oh, wow. Yeah. (laughs) Depending on how stable the isotope is. Yeah. It's a little, it's a little bit of a gap. (laughs) Just a tiny, just a a tiny gap. It's fine. Um, The last interesting thing I'll say about alpha decay, and I think you'll like this because it makes me think of Red Rising, um, is that approximately 99% of the helium produced on Earth is a result of alpha decay. And it just (laughs) makes me think of the helium-3 mines. Helium mining, everybody. (laughs) That's right. Dude, they found helium-3 on Mars, or not on Mars, on on the moon. It's probably on Mars. (laughs) Right. Who knows? Who knows? (laughs) That's the... we talk about Orwell as being the guy who predicted everything. It's actually Pierce Brown. He, yeah. Yep. Yep. Nope. You don't know that yet, but it's true. He already, he did. Yeah. He did. He did. <laughs> for those of you who that. don't know what we're talking about, that's the first episode of the Hawkeye Book Club. So definitely go back and check that out. Yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, 
So the second type of radioactive decay is called beta decay. And I think we have a image of beta decay. Maybe there, there are two types of beta decay, beta minus decay and beta plus decay. Yay. And beta minus decay, basically a neutron collapses into a proton, an electron and an antineutrino. This is what we were talking about earlier um, for carbon dating, right? This is beta decay. The electron is ejected, but the proton remains, leaving behind a, a slightly more stable element with an extra proton. And the daughter isotope is a new element that is distinct from the parent. And beta plus decay, the proton instead of the neutron, is the one that decays to produce a new neutron, a positron, and a neutrino. So the positron and the neutrino are ejected, leaving behind a daughter isotope that has one less proton, one more neutron, uh, making it a different element from the parent isotope. Basically, we're making isotopes. Yay! Thank you. <laughs> I know, a lot of chemistry, um, but I just want to give you guys context. Yeah. Understanding it. Uh, Dave says, I thought beta decay was when those manosphere types got old. <laughs> I mean, ouch, but probably true. That was a good one. <laughs> that was good. <laughs> okay. So I, I know that was a lot of setup, but it gives me a chance to talk about the first method that is used to date rocks, which is the potassium argon dating. I think we might have an image of potassium argon dating. Um, yeah. So this is typically used to date solidified molten rock, a.k.a. igneous rock, the, the stuff that cools off after there's been lava out of a volcano. Uh, potassium is a large part and of a wide variety of different mineral deposits. It's the most common. The most common of these is feldspar. And so this can be applied to lots and lots of rocks. So basically, the way this works is potassium-40, which is the radioactive isotope, is very slow decaying. Um, only about 11% of the potassium will actually decay into argon. The rest of it is way more stable. If it decays at all, it decays into calcium. But most rocks are made of calcium carbonate. And calcium carbonate is so just naturally abundant. You can't really tell the difference between the two when you're, you can't tell the difference between what was made through decay and what was naturally present. So it's not good for dating. Right. But argon is not naturally present in rocks. Argon is noble gas. Right. Very noble. I very totally smart. remember that. <laughs> We're getting <laughs> chemistry lesson tonight. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so quick recap of noble gases. Noble gases are very stable. They, they like to be by the. This is what I always tell my students. They like to be by themselves. They don't <laughs> like anybody else. They're super loners. They don't need anybody. And they're just going to be a gas and float off. You know, so yes. they're just chill. They don't react with anything. They're, they're just fine the way they are. So, <laughs> but that also means this gas can't undergo a chemical reaction into something else. That's important. So yeah. basically, you're trapping all of this gas inside the rock during the last molten phase. And okay. the amount of argon gas inside the rock would be an indicator of the age of the rock. Right. So it's a <laughs> yeah. 
Strong, independent gas that don't need no man. <laughs> That's right. Strong, independent gas don't need no man. <laughs> Wartime propaganda nailed it. Love it. Um, <laughs> what's crazy, and I don't even know how they came up with this number, is that they say the half-life for potassium-40 has been calculated to be 1.25 billion with a B years. Right. Yes. Sure. Sure thing. <laughs> Base babe's cracking me up. I know. She's on fire. She is on fire. See, uh, audio listeners, this is why you guys need to come on over to Rumble so you can see everybody's hilarious chats. <laughs> and leave your own hilarious chats. Right. Instead of just talking to yourself while you're listening to the podcast, you could chat, put it in the chat. That's right. <laughs> I think this is a good time to remind everybody to smash that like button to remember to subscribe. I hope you guys are enjoying this. I hope you're getting super nerdy with me. Yeah. It's fun. Yeah. Mm. How does one even figure out the half-life? Basically, they have to look at a small sample and watch it decay a certain amount and then extrapolate that out. It's like... If I know how much decays in five seconds, I can back calculate that to see how much, how long it would take for half of it to decay. Right. If that makes sense. Yes. Yeah. You can take that and expand on it. Absolutely. Right. The, the important thing about half-lives I'd like to point out, and I don't know if I did earlier, is they have to assume that the half-life is independent of its surroundings. So the half-life is never changing. It cannot be impacted by pressure, temperature, water, like anything. Nothing. Yeah. The no matter what is- happens, that half-life is going to be the half-life always. Always. Is the assumption. Right. That's <laughs> Knowing how life is, again, that's a pretty heavy assumption. Yes. <laughs> Um, and again, just like with carbon-14, they have to assume that the ratio of potassium-40 to potassium-39, which is the stable isotope, is constant in nature. They have to assume that the amount of argon in the rock was exclusively made from potassium-40 decay and mm-hmm. not because the rock crystallized around any extraneous or atmospheric argon. Gotcha. That's a big deal. So they're excluding contamination. Actually, they've even said that this assumption can't be applied to deep sea basalts because numerous samples have been shown to not completely release any extraneous argon before they solidify. (laughs) So that's nice. So there's that. (laughs) So there's that. Yeah. Uh, And then we don't know. And we don't know what else might have affected other things as well. Like we know that one for sure. Right. Yeah. Anyway, like, yeah. I'm just pointing out the obvious here, but <laughs> no, I think that's important because like, I know I'm saying a lot of science words and maybe people are like already asleep and it's all going over everybody's head. Uh, and I don't mean to say it like that. Um, but like, what am I trying to say? <laughs> You just need somebody to point out the obvious. Like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> no. Thank you for pointing out the obvious. Yeah. <laughs> Something. I don't know. Uh, okay. So that's potassium argon decay. Yeah. Uh, the last type I'll talk about just like really quick. We'll fly through it is uranium lead decay. This is thought to be the oldest and the most refined method for radiometric dating. Mm. Hmm. So important. Okay. 
Uh, <laughs> its dating capability ranges between the 1 million year mark and 4.5 billion years, theoretically with 1% variance. So they really believe in this method. Right. Right. And gotcha. I, I can understand why, because it's use. It's typically applied to zircon crystals, so things like granite, sandstone. These are like some some of the most prominent rocks you would find yeah. in layers. Like there's tons of it in the Grand Canyon. Yeah. And the the mineral typically incorporates lots of uranium and thorium atoms. So the remember these are highly radioactive, and it's part of the crystalline structure. So it would strongly reject lead because lead atoms are big. Lead atoms yeah. are super big. Um, they're 1.32 atomic units. That's huge. And they have a low charge. So they don't like to be in crystal lattices. Um, and so that means that any lead found in the rock, theoretically, was exclusively made through uranium decay. And I think we might have an image of uranium decay. Yeah, so that wouldn't have happened any other way except through, that is what they're saying, through. Right. Okay. Uh, I think that was the potassium argon decay. Don't you know your guess yeah. is PJ? <laughs> <laughs> hey, I, everybody give some cheers to PJ. He's producing for us today. He's doing an awesome job. I know the software and the lag is a lot to deal with, but he's killing it. So he is. He big is. thanks to PJ. All right. So, yeah, this is this is uranium decay. That looks pretty long, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's not as simple as like carbon going to nitrogen or potassium going to argon. Uranium has to go through lots and lots and lots of daughter isotopes before it actually gets to lead itself. Gotcha. Uh, what's really interesting is because this mechanism is so long and drawn out, you can actually see the physical imprint left behind in the rock in the form of radio halos. And we have a picture of a radio halo. They're these Yay. cool little circle things. I like them. I, they kind of look like um, the one after that. Maybe. There, yeah, there we go. Ooh, All right. Pretty. These are cool. To me, I always think of them like... If you've ever shot a gun, you see how a bullet entry is and it kind of the whatever you're shooting, uh, the damage kind of spreads out, especially if you're shooting like a cork target, you kind yeah. of see the damage in this radial pattern. Yeah, it's the same sort of thing. And the this happens in areas with high concentrations of uranium parent isotopes. Yeah, kind of like that. Yeah, nice. Um, <clears throat> The central core is the darkest part of the radio halo, and it's the most radioactive. So high-energy alpha particles are being emitted from the core during radioactive decay. And that's what actually causes the discoloration. Gotcha. Uh, how far out the particles travel and the size of the ring itself depends on the energy of the alpha particle being emitted. So just like in forensics, where you could have an idea of the bullet being used based on the radial spread out of the damage. Mm -hmm. You could have an idea of the element that is producing the radio halo based on its pattern. I think okay. that's kind of cool. That's, that's pretty awesome. That's, yeah. So you can tell a lot just by the radio halo. Yeah. Itself. So like that one we saw was very spherical. There are some, that look kind of elliptical. Uh, the polonium radio halo looks super elliptical. 
Um, I think we have a picture of that and we'll talk about that one um, more later, but you can see, yeah, so that one's uranium. It's very circular, very uniform. Uh, and, and you can tell it looks very distinct and it looks very yeah. distinct from other ones that have different shapes. And it gets, like you said, you know, it's dark in the middle and right. it lighter as it goes out. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. All right. So we have to make, again, some assumptions for uranium lead dating, just like everything else. You have to assume that right. all the lead in the crystal is a result of decay and not because the rock formed around atomic level lead. So there's no cross-contamination right. by airborne lead, reagents, lab equipment. <laughs> <laughs> just lab equipment. <laughs> yeah. Theoretically, this is accounted for. Again, you're hoping they have a calibration curve. Um, but by the same vein, you're hoping no lead has leaked out. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's that's kind of important. And this is frustrating because even scientists in this field will acknowledge that you basically have to assume a date in order to prove a date. Right. Which is so backwards or it's or um, skewed already. Yeah. If you're already assuming a date. Yeah. Because the, the mass spectrometers are designed to measure isotopic ratios, not absolute quantities or individual isotopes. So they have to assume that the values received are representative and can give you useful information about the date and the mineral. Like, right. Like, uh, I have this quote from geologist Dr. Andrew Snelling, who said, the only way to determine an absolute amount of lead uh, from them is to make assumptions about the past history of the lead isotopes in the samples, especially in a deep time history for the Earth and its origins, as well as for deep time history for the sample being dated. Yet the uranium lead isotope ages derived using those assumptions are then constructed to construct deep time history. So it's a circular, it's a loop. <laughs> yeah. I have to make yeah. an assumption that deep time exists in order to use the uranium lead dating to prove that deep time exists. Right. So you could argue too that if you want it to say a certain thing, you can make it say that certain Exactly. If you want a certain date, if you want it to be, like you just said, if you want it yep. to be super old, then you start the base at a really old date. And guess what it's going to show you? But A super old date. How about that? Weird. Yeah. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing. <laughs> That's totally legit. It's totally legit. So, and of <laughs> course, you have to assume that nothing impacts the rate of decay. So, right. even just looking at the experiments themselves, we can see that there are lots of possible flaws. Right. But just like in the seed oils episode, it does that bear out in the data? Does that bear out experimentally? Right. And I would say yes. This in this case are our understanding of the possible flaws, we actually see those flaws come to fruition in the data. So the first one I want to talk about is the daughter element is exclusively a result of the parent element. And we can see this is a huge violation in the potassium argon breakdown if we have that data set to show. 
basically, we have these sets of rocks with known ages because of eyewitness testimony, right? We saw them being made. The oldest one is like 500 years old. But they were all dated to be hundreds of thousands of years old. I think it's a... Here, I'll pull it up. It's like... So I'm I'm sorry, I missed that. Will you say that one more time? Yes. Okay. I got caught up in No, you're good. <laughs> so many images. We're doing the best we can, guys. I'm sorry. There we go. Yeah, data. Okay, here we go. All right. So so let's just look at this data piece for a second. We know when all of these rocks were formed, okay? We have yes. a rock from Hawaii. We know we know for a fact it's form date because we have a record for it. Okay. It was dated using the potassium argon method ah, to be 8 million years old. We have a volcanic rock from Italy. We know the date of 2 million years old. What's going on? I thought these things were <laughs> supposed to be reliable. Right. But when we date these modern things that we know that we know yeah. It just doesn't work. Mm-mm. Hmm. Did they have any explanation behind that? Okay. So here's, here's the issue. Um, one, one of the two assumptions has been broken. Either we don't actually know the true right. rate of decay from potassium argon or argon was already present in the rock during sample formation. Gotcha. So it, it has to be one or the other. Either the rate of decay was so incredibly increased because of whatever event formed the rock that the half-life was just increased and it sped up the chemical reaction or the rocks were being formed around naturally present argon, which breaks at least both assumptions, one of both assumptions. Right. So, so that's an issue. <laughs> um, yeah, and and there are like articles and data that is showing this. And what I find crazy is that remember helium is the the second lightest element, and it's also a noble gas, just like argon, and it's produced by alpha decay. So that means the uranium uh, to lead series right that one that they thought was the most reliable it's the oldest one gives us the best information is producing right. lots of helium okay so and remember helium can't chemically combine with anything because it's really small and gaseous but it also will readily diffuse from the rock in fact it so readily diffuses through rock there should not be any detectable mm. right that's why we're it's detecting lead instead of helium right so in theory, after bare minimum 100,000 years, there should not be any helium left. Right. And yet. <laughs> and yet. And yet. Well, <laughs> while drilling into pre-Cambrian, aka pre-flood, granite rocks in New Mexico, geologists extracted samples of zirconium crystal from different depths. So th this is like super old rock. And because it was so far down, it was super hot rock. 
I don't know oh. if you guys know anything about gases, but the hotter they are, the faster they move. So the more likely they are to escape. Okay. Right. So right. these rocks should have absolutely no helium in them at all. That pieced out a long time ago. Supposedly. Long time ago. Especially if they were dated to be 1.5 billion years old like they were. Right? Yes. 58% of the helium that was generated through alpha decay still remained Whoa. in the crystals. Whoa. Like, like not what? even, not, it's not a smidgen. It's 58%. That's crazy. Yeah. Assuming that all of that was, yeah. 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 Uh, no matter how you look at it, either uranium's rate of decay is alterable by its surroundings, right? Because this was pre-flood, right? Right. What if the flood happened and that's what sped it up? Ooh. Hmm. Hmm. You mean that could have an impact on things? <laughs> oh, I don't know. Or it might there might be evidence of it because of things like this? <laughs> Bare minimum, things like this. Like, even if you don't believe in a global cataclysmic flood, you could believe in local flooding could cause right. something like this to happen. Right. And based on the diffusion rate alone, guess how old the rocks would be? <sighs> no idea. 4,000 to 8,000 years. Oh, snap. 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 Yeah. It just lines up. It just lines up. <laughs> I, and that's just the violation of one assumption. Right. All right. So let, let's go back to those radio halos we were talking about earlier. I just think these guys, they're so cool. They're, <laughs> they're so pretty. Yeah. Uh, and they're, they're so interesting. Let me see if I can try and pull up a picture of them. Yeah, here we go. Pretty little radio halo. All right. So these ones in particular, you notice their shape is really different from the uranium halo. All right. right. It has that very elliptical shape. Again, audio listeners, we wish you guys were here to see the pretty picture. Um, but this, it's this oblong shape that has this like little eye center. Okay. Yes. Um, and this is very characteristic of polonium-210 decay. And this was discovered in colified wood. Basically what that means is wood had had begun the process of becoming coal. And the first step of that is making peat. Um, so the wood that we're talking about from this study was found in uranium mines near the Colorado Plateau. And mm -hmm. some of the log formations there have already been dated. They said they were between 55 to 80 million years old. It's like, okay, they're already super old. Um, but the reason we know these rings are made from polonium-210 is because polonium-210 only has a half-life of 138 days. Oh. Yeah. Gotcha. And that's what gives it that characteristic single ring. Like we saw uranium had lots of little rings spiraling yeah. out. That's mm -hmm. because it takes a long time for it to decay. Whereas polonium, it's like, I'm gone. Hi, guys. <laughs> I'm out. Yeah, I'm out. <laughs> it, it would only take about two to three half lives or about a year for it to all be gone. Um, gotcha. That, certainly not more than 10. It, it just depends on how much you have there. 
Right. And only one of the three radioactive isotopes of polonium is deposited in these logs because we see that only one ring is formed. Okay. And it always has this really unique elliptical shape. But then they found this other weird one. I'm getting there, guys. It's coming. It's coming. It's coming. Okay. (laughs) How about this one? Oh. Yeah. This one's a little different. Yeah. So we have our classic elliptical shape, but it looks like there's this sort of ghost of a sphere. Yeah. As if maybe the wood had been compressed during its lifetime. Hmm. Okay. You want to know what happened in this area? Yes. That they can confirm? Major flooding. (laughs) Impacted again. Impacted again. (laughs) So, yeah. These trees were uprooted and smashed due to devastating flood in this area. And so the uranium-rich solution saturated the logs in less than a year, forming these tiny specks of polonium to decay in the form of circular halos. Hmm. But because we have both the circular and the elliptical, that means that the flood that killed the tree couldn't have happened millions of years ago, (laughs) but maybe like three to four. Yes. Uh, Yeah. 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 And were they saying previous, like, were they saying previously that it was... Old, much older than that? Yeah. Yeah. They yeah. were saying it was like 35 to like 245 million years. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which is a big range, by the way. Like uh, the throwing around hundreds of millions of years. That's not a small thing. That's like, not if a I, small amount of time. <laughs> that's not a small amount of time. No. Jeez. Like I don't do any betting, but I wouldn't bet on that. <laughs> <laughs> And instead, it was just maybe three or four years. Yeah. Yeah. And so Mm. I just wonder if there was anything in our past that perhaps could have impacted other things in such (laughs) a similar way. Hmm. Weird. Gosh, I can't think of anything. Can't think of anything. (laughs) Global flood. What? Global flood. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. All right, so so let's talk about conflicting dates. I think the Grand Canyon is such a nice example of this. Absolutely. Because, yeah. People love the Grand Canyon, right? It's so it's so reliable. Like if I was making a stack of pancakes, I would expect the layers on the bottom to be older than the layers on the top. Right? Yep. That's how it should be for the Grand Canyon. Except when they use rubidiums or conium uh strontium. To date it, the bottom is younger than the top. Hmm. Because that makes makes sense. sense. It makes no sense. (laughs) No. Uh, So that's nice. You don't flip the pancakes. But but really, though, like. No. No. Yeah. Yeah. But it makes, that makes, you know, with that, makes no sense. It makes literally no sense. Yeah. Um, and they did, the, they did the same data mismatching with Mount St. Helen. 
Oh, I didn't about, know that. We talked about Mount St. Helen. I think it was our second episode when we talked yes. about the flood, right? So we yes. know when Mount St. Helen happened, right? It was yes. the 1980s. 86. Right. So if you date the age of the rock, you should get like 20, 30 years, you know, whenever you started dating it. Not millions of years. Right. You would but, think that that would be succinct because you know right. when it happened. And if your dating is so, is remotely accurate. <laughs> yeah. 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 So here's the thing I come down to every time. There is not a single, not a single report I could find. And I challenge you guys in the comments, leave me data. I love finding things. I'll, I'll be happy to be wrong about this. If you can prove me wrong, I, you know, right. let's do it. Um, bring it on. Bring it on. I'd love it. <laughs> uh, no research has turned up a study where the known dates of rocks have been confirmed by radiometric dating. So right. if they can't confirm the known dates of rocks, how could I could trust that they could confirm the dates of unknown rocks? Right. If you extrapolate that out, <laughs> it doesn't add up. It doesn't add up. Yeah. Like, no. no. Um, and the, the last thing I'll talk about is the conflict between the methodologies. Because if you think it should be this way, right? If I lined out all the methodologies and I used potassium argon and uranium thorium and rubidium strontium and like all of these different dating methods they have to date the same sample, we should come up within reason, similar dates of rocks, right? You would think. You would think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's not what happens. Not so much. Not oh, so no. much. Let me see. Yeah, here we go. I got a cool little graphic for us. Yeah. Maybe. I appreciate you guys being so patient while I learn how to do the new tech. We're getting there, guys. We're getting there. All right. Here we go. All right. So let's, let's look at this data right here. So I have this Cardenas basalt, right? Using potassium argon, it was dated to be, and remember this is in terms of millions of years, 560 or 516 boy uh millions years rubidium strontium over a billion this uh merium neodymium over a billion do you see how clearly these just like massively massively disagree with one another like it's not within the realm of Oh, you know, there's a 5% difference. Right. Or a 20%. Even 20, I wouldn't find very acceptable. If you had that much of a difference in normal chemical analysis, it would not be accepted. It would never right. be published. But these are massive, <laughs> massive differences. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And it's just accepted. Or not looked at or not even like, you don't, I never really knew all these differences and that they were so different from each other. I, uh, wow. <laughs> it's so frustrating because we're told this thing is so irrefutable. Right. And it's like, you can't even ask the question about it. Nope. 
Nope. The 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 way it is defended is almost religious. And it, yeah, it's not to say that there's not good information here. In fact, if, if you go back and notice, uh, let me pull it back up again. The potassium argon age and the rubidium strontium ages were always younger than the other two, the uranium lead and the samarium neodymium. So why is it at least two of them are, are both younger and two of them are both older? Well, if you remember, the potassium argon went through beta decay and rubidium does the same thing. Uranium and neodymium go through alpha decay. So beta decay always seems to give younger dates than alpha decay. And I was like, wow, that's weird. So yeah. I dug into that just a little bit. Let me see if I can share a different. Uh, and so this shows how instead of dealing with millions of years, it, it's a it's a relationship to one another. Right. So we can get relative ages based on the fact that maybe they were sped up. Maybe the half-lives underwent some sort of change, maybe because of a cataclysmic event. Mm -hmm. Hmm. And mm -hmm. that had different impacts on different methods. Right. Yeah. But we can't. But we can't look at that. I don't know. It just like when we talked about this, when we talked about the flood before, right. we had said that like you can't even people who had people who even suggested maybe something like that. It was definitely um, they were scoffed. They were mocked. They were like not taken seriously at all. But you still have this evidence that lines up, whether you think it was the flood of the Bible or not. There's still all this evidence of a cataclysmic Something. Right. Something that makes something. things make sense. At least that's what I'm right. gathering from this. No, I, I think you're absolutely right. And again, my frustration with this is because <laughs> they use this to verify the fossil record, right? Because right. this is what they used to date rocks. I, I know I probably overhyped radiometric dating and I didn't really get to talk about the fossil record at all. Um, we will. We will. Worry. We will. Remember <laughs> we will. this uh, series because yeah. there's just so much here. Yes. Right. Um, yeah. <clears throat> and the fossil record is based on this idea of uniformitarianism, right? It's the theory that changes in the earth's crust during geological history have resulted from continuous and uniform processes. Nothing cataclysmic ever happened. No big changes ever happen. It's all just, you know, it's going to be easy. Uh, you know, the older rocks are going to be, or the older fossils are going to be lower and the younger fossils are going to be higher. It's all very logical, right? It's so logical that it's almost sanitary and removing the possibility for unique things to happen. Yes. Again, in that vacuum, it's keeping it very yeah. contained. Sanitary is a great word. <laughs> and I just think, no matter how you look at it, you're going to take something on assumption. 
Either you're going to take it on faith that a cataclysmic flood happened and it was sent by God and he used it to basically reset mankind because they were being awful and terrible and the earth is only so many thousands of years old. Or you're going to take it on faith that these dating methods are 100% true and you don't have to assume too much or you're just, you're going to ignore the assumptions and you're going to take scientism on faith. Yes. At some point you're taking something on faith and you have to decide for yourself. Are you going to follow uniformitarianism, scientism, whatever ism you want to call it? <laughs> are you going to follow God? I like to hedge my bet on God. Personally. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, I think no matter what it comes, the bottom line is the more you look into anything, so they can keep telling us over and over again, like, this is how it is. This is how it is. Don't question it. Trust it. This is how it is. Right. And the thing is really, um, that's like a blind faith with these things. And I'd like to think that not only are we questioning this, but we question we question our faith too, and that's what strengthens it. And if you question maybe the faith in science, it doesn't always not that science isn't real or that science isn't true. It's just what you're being fed constantly might not always add up. And but it doesn't matter in that. It does take faith no matter what you're yeah. what you're gonna look into. So it does. Yeah. And I know some will come at me and be like, oh well, we just don't have the right technology yet. We'll prove it to be true. Okay. You're still taking it on faith. Yeah. 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 So yeah, I mean, I can say the same thing. I can say, you know, I uh don't <laughs> I haven't crossed over yet so mm-hmm. i can't tell you right what it is yet but I when i do <laughs> but when i do no exactly but i'm taking it on faith just as much as you are in that you're taking it on faith that the technology will come out someday to prove you're right and that's your choice i'm taking it on faith that this is all a beautiful masterpiece that was created by god and i you know we're both in the same boat right just i will boat. just say at least we have eyewitness testimony. Just saying. Boom. <laughs> Boom. Uh, I love it. Agreed. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I loved it. Yay. I loved it. I love that you're talking about the flood because I'm definitely talking about it more next week. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> so, so yeah. This is like the perfect segue. Perfect segue for next week. Let me see if I can remember how to change the little graphics. There we go. Oh, we're going to figure it out. Yeah. New tech, guys. We're getting there. Yep. Ha-ha-ha. Oh, yeah. So don't forget nope. to get quirky by checking out the hawkhoundmedia.myshopify.com. We have all this cool merch. Look at our sweet merch. Some stuff. And, yeah, don't forget to join our locals at quirksofcreation.locals.com. Don't forget to check out Conspiracy Pill because they're super awesome. And they're having Dan Dillon on. That's super cool. That's going to be fun. Come Love on. It. It didn't add the new. Well, I made a new thumbnail and it's cute, but I forgot to add it because yeah. I'm smart like that. I like it. But Elise is doing part two. 
Right. Right. So I think you set this up beautifully in that like you can understand the the science behind it and the, the base and where we're where are we going to take it? And, and all these times that we scoff at carbon dating in every right. episode. Now you know why we scoff. I'm, you know what's ironic is I actually feel the most confident about carbon dating than any of the other methods because at least they can retro confirm it with tree ring dating. Right, right. It's still not great There's, because it has lots of holes, but at least you have something you can kind of cross-reference. Yes. Everything else just doesn't correlate with one another. Uh, yep. <laughs> it seems like they're pulling it out of thin air, which I know they're not really, but at the same time, it's still like. Mm. They're not because uh, just like they're when we not. talked about quantum theory, a yeah. lot of it's really fuzzy and on the edges and we're still figuring things out. And I, yep. as, as a scientist, I can appreciate that. I can appreciate that we don't know everything, that yeah. we don't understand everything and that things change. That's okay. People always are always like, the science is always changing. The doctor said one thing and now it's different. Yeah, that's how science works. We learn new things. We don't use leeches anymore. We learned that's probably a bad idea. Right, right. If it didn't change, we'd be in a world of hurt, I think, in a lot of ways. <laughs> exactly. So, so yeah. it's okay for science to change. But scientists also have to admit that it's changing yeah. and not be so intense and zealous about the way they defend it because it's not it's not supposed to be a religion it's supposed to be a means of just like enjoying god's creation of understanding it better yes not a religion unto itself yes and that's what i come down to on that i love it yeah <laughs> so if you guys want to stick around in the Rumble chat and hear my theory that maybe Anunnaki Nephilim have messed with human DNA to make us look less like the image of God, yeah, we're going to get super quacky over here in the Rumble chat. Um, That's my favorite. Stick around or go over to local so you can get the full audio podcast. But otherwise, thank you so much for joining us. We will see you guys next time.